my name's Cam. I've been a Christian always two years. I never grew up in a Christian home. So when I found out about my dad's brain tumour, it was really difficult. But at the time, I'd been starting to go to the hub on a Friday night. And the leaders were really nice. And the people that I met there were really nice. There was something different about that place. I didn't know what it was at the time. And then I started going out with Dan. And I, realized, I found out they were all Christians. And then I was asked to go take part in the gospel choir on a Sunday. and back to church Sunday. And that's when, at the first service, I felt like a little inkling. I didn't know what it was, so I just dismissed it. Then at the second service, I felt that little nudge again. And then someone said, you need to pray this prayer if you want to become a Christian. And I felt something inside me just go, yeah, do it. So I prayed the prayer, and that's when I became a Christian. Since meeting Jesus, everything's felt different. The way I act in everyday life. I'm a lot more confident with myself and... When I meet young people, I treat them differently to how I used to, and I found my passion for them. And on the 9th of December, 2012, I decided to get baptised, and that was when the game changed for my dad. I first came in here with for Camilla's baptism. It was a bit strange, because I'd never been in before, and there was a lot of people here. But it was great to see Cam getting her baptism and um, because when she started coming, it was basically when, after she found out about my brain tumour. And before that, I did know a little, but when I found out about my brain tumour, I lost all my faith in Jesus. But it was through Cam that I found that it was helping herself with people in church as well. So it was really nice to be, to meet people that were helping and were also praying for me, even though I wasn't here to start off with. So that brought me into thinking, Jesus can help me. After that, I uh, went to do, do the journey course with Dan. And then after that, I'd done Alpha with Simon. My game changer was on the 7th of July when I prayed the prayer to become a Christian. Even with some of my friends, I've actually told them about me becoming a Christian and coming to church and how much I enjoy it. And there's one friend of mine turned around and said to me, he says, coming to church has obviously changed me and he finds me more tolerable when we meet and we actually talk. As people will know now, I actually help out with the kids on a Friday night and I also do food bank, which I enjoy doing and I'm pleased to be able to help through the church. Since meeting Jesus, the game's changed for both of us and we want the game changed for other people. Don't we, Dad? Absolutely. You know, I don't know about you, but I never get tired of hearing stories like that, do you? Oh, it's just amazing. And like the guys have done such a great job putting it all together and so I've watched it in various times, you know, through the week. And every time I'd watch a little bit of a story like that, I just think, God, this is what it's all about. Do you know what I mean? I'm making sense. This is what it's all about. 
you know, a daughter gets her game changed by Jesus, then a dad, you know, and you just, oh, God is so amazing. And I don't know why you're here this morning, and I'm, I know most of you, but I don't know all of you, and I don't know why you're here, and you might not know why you're here neither. You know, you, you perhaps just woke up this morning, and then somebody dragged you along, and before you know where you are, you're here in this church listening to this strange man talk at me, but you might not know why you're here, but God does. And, you know, you, th- those are stories of people who, who recently, really, have had their game changed by Jesus. And there's other people here in this room who, and this has happened for us years ago and and continually happens as we interact with him. And and you might not know why you're here, but God does. And and I want you to know right from the beginning, we believe the ultimate game changer is Jesus Christ. And when you encounter Jesus, not only does he change your game, but he makes you a game changer as well. And uh, we just hope and pray that as you spend some time with us this morning and perhaps you want to come back as well. If you're not ready yet to make this commitment to say, I want him to change my game, that's fine. You just hang around and you just keep coming back and keep asking questions and, and keep poking and keep thinking about it. Because one day, if you do that long enough, you'll meet him and everything will change when you meet him. I don't know whether any of you have had a horrible job in your life. Anyone ever had a horrible job? Can you remember the worst job you've ever had? When I was about 20, I had, I had this job and it was... Um, it actually wasn't a paid job because it was all commission. It was cold selling, okay? And, and I was so horrible at it, okay? I think in about three months, I think I made one sale, all right? So, uh, you know, and I, I quit in the end. I was desperate to get out of it. But whatever horrible job you've ever had, I want to suggest it's not as horrible as this job. None of you have had that job, okay? None of you have had that job. And it's not as horrible as this job, okay? Because deodorant, uh, someone's got a smell whether it's effective or not, all right? It's gross, isn't it? It's totally gross, okay? And uh, this, this is a pretty, I mean, I admire the passion of that man. That's plumbing for you, that is. That's cleaning out the drain. That's hardcore plumbing. That's amazing. And we have a dentist in the church, but this dentist, I mean, that's a whole different deal. You had any mouths like that, John? No, I won't say anything. <laughs> So whether you've had, I want to suggest you've never had a horrible job like that before. And there's a guy in the Bible that we're going to look at his story. And he had a horrible job, but it wasn't horrible from his perspective. But everyone else looked at him and they thought, that is the worst job on the planet. And we're going to look at this guy's story this morning. So if you've got a Bible, we're Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words of the Bible are coming up on the screen. And this is just a story. It's kind of 10 verses. Uh, um, and we're just gonna, I'm going to tell the story. And if you've ever been to Sunday school, perhaps when you were a kid, or you've been to a school assembly, you know, then you may have known this story because it's like a children's story, really. Okay, But I think it's got so much life in it. And I want to talk to you about it this morning. Here's the story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
Let me tell you a little bit of background. We're in Jericho again. If you were here last week, you remember that we were in Jericho last week as well, weren't we? And we said that it's a town of historic uh, or, or of strategic significance because it sits here on a road and 15 miles down that road is Jerusalem. And uh, whenever anyone's going to head to Jerusalem, they're going to pass through Jericho and on this road. And it's um, 15 miles outside of Jerusalem, as I've said. And it's a really, really important strategic kind of town. But not only that, it's also a town of historic importance as well. Because the children of Israel, hundreds of years before, were in captivity in Egypt. Then they came out. They went through the wilderness. You remember the Moses story. They went across the Jordan and into the promised land. And the first city they came to, the first town they came to, was Jericho. It's where Rahab hid the spies. It's where Joshua marched around. The walls fell down. It's also the same road where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. That you, Again, you probably know that story. So it's quite a strategic, important town. But it's also a town of economic importance. It's the largest tax base in the whole country. But it's also a town of spiritual importance as well. Because in this town, Jesus meets lots of people and often he's passing through, not intending to meet them, but when he meets them, their game changes. So last week, we looked at the guy called Bartimaeus, a blind man begging. And he was there when Jesus was passing through and his game changed. And this man, Zacchaeus, who lived in uh, Jericho, his game is about to change, as we're going to see. So this is Zach's story. Okay, Last week, it was Bart's story. Definitely like an episode of The Simpsons now, I reckon. And this week, it's Zach's story. So... The Bible says that he's a tax collector, but not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. Uh, And the Bible uses an interesting phrase. You see, a chief tax collector is interesting because not only is he a tax collector, but he's a chief tax collector. And that means something. You see, everybody else absolutely hated this man because of the job he was doing. And you might think, well, why would you hate hate someone so much just because they're a chief tax collector? Well, the first thing I want to say is nobody likes paying taxes. Am I right? Not anyone in this room that really likes paying taxes. And nobody likes paying taxes. They didn't then and they don't now. Secondly, nobody likes paying more taxes than they should. And under the Roman system, there was a thing called tax farming where you could apply for the contract to be the tax collector in the town. And Zacchaeus did that. And once he'd applied for that contract, what actually happened then was that um, he could then put more tax on top. So he, not only was he taking the tax that he should have took but he was taking more on top and keeping it for himself he's not a popular man but even worse than that you're not a popular man if you're a Jew and you're working to get money out of other Jews for the Romans who were the occupying force so this man is the worst of the worst in this whole town in fact the Bible has a phrase it says sinners and tax collectors so like really really bad people and tax collectors are even worse than that They have a category all on their own. But then in verse 3, Zacchaeus, this chief tax collector who nobody likes, hears that Jesus is passing through. And it says in verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, so he ran ahead. There's like a curiosity inside this man, and he's so curious that he runs ahead, climbs up a tree to try and see who Jesus is. I want to suggest something to you, okay? And this is really important right now that you hear this. This man has something inside of him which he doesn't yet know what it is, but it's a hunger and a desire for relationship. I want to suggest that relationship is the single biggest game changer. And I think that every person on planet Earth has a hunger and a desire for relationship with God. I think we have a desire for a relationship with people, of course, but I think we also have a hunger and a desire for a relationship with God. 
And he doesn't know it yet, but something's inside of him causing him to run, causing him to climb a tree, causing him to put himself out there because he's got a desire for relationship. And we're going to see how that hunger and that desire for relationship changes his game. And there are five kind of steps to this that I want to talk to you about. And each of them happen to begin with the same letter, all right? I didn't do it deliberately. They just happen to begin with the same letter. The first one is disadvantage. See, in verse 2, the Bible says that Zacchaeus was wealthy... That's an advantage, right? Right? Not sure where you're going with this. Don't want to be tricked in public. Is that what some of you are saying? But verse, the next verse says, but he was short. And that's a disadvantage, right? Not sure where he's going. You see, I can feel it. So, okay, let, let, let's, let's give a test then. Okay, let's, let's see what you think. How many of you would like to be three inches taller or three inches shorter? Three inches shorter. Okay. Three inches taller. Most of you think tall is an advantage. How many of you would like to be less wealthy than you are right now? How many of you would like to be more wealthy than you? Ah, so in our minds, in our minds, wealth equals advantage, shortness equals disadvantage, right? That's really interesting. I've just finished reading this book, which is a fascinating book, and it's called David and Goliath. It's written by a guy called Malcolm Gladwell who wrote The Tipping Point, if you know that book. It's not particularly a Christian book, although each of the chapters are based on a Bible verse and story, which is interesting. But he talks in this book, and you'd have to read the whole book to get it, um, but he talks in this book about the power of disadvantage. And, And he says, you see, the David and Goliath story has become like a metaphor. We all know it now. It's like the underdog, the David, beats the favorite, the Goliath. Yeah? And that's the metaphor, David and Goliath. And you see, what happened, he said, is that King Saul, when David, as this young little kid, came along to him and said, I'll take the big giant on. Okay, you know the story, many of you. You know, he looked at that and says, you're not going to do it. And he was skeptical because in his mind, big equals advantage and small equals disadvantage. But what he didn't know, okay, what he didn't really take into consideration was that in the army in those days, there were three kinds of, uh, of, 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 of army, basically. There was the infantry, there was the cavalry, and there was what they called projectile warriors, People that threw projectiles, and in his case, it was a sling. So when you're a skilled projectile warrior, and you're a really, really big guy, you're not just, you're too big to miss, to be honest with you. And he didn't understand, and we don't understand, the power of disadvantage. And in the book, and I'll give you a few examples, a little potted thing through the book, he says some fascinating things which have really gripped me. He says, you see, we have this view that if you're big, Okay, or you're rich, then that's an advantage and anything else is a disadvantage. So wars. Our view is that in wars, the small country will always beat the big country, right? In 70% of cases, that's true. That means a third of the times it's not true. Let me give you my own example, not from the book. What have these three countries got in common? Costa Rica, Belgium and Chile. What have these other three countries got in common? England, Italy and, and Spain. I'll make my point. England, Italy and Spain, they've got the three best leagues in the world and they're three massive football countries. They didn't make it through the group stages. Those other three countries are tiny. We've never heard of the players and yet they got through. Disadvantage is not always as negative as we think. And then another example he gives is class sizes. If you're a teacher, you'll get very cross to me this morning. That's okay, you're down there, I'm here, the engine's running, I'm about to shoot off in a minute. But... What happens is that we think smaller class sizes is advantage. What he argues in that book is really interesting. He says, in the research that's been done all around the world, 15% of students 
do better in smaller class sizes. 15% do worse. He says, we automatically think that the smaller class size must be the better, but that's not always the case. There's all kinds of dynamics, the kind of people, the kind of environment, the way the teacher teaches, and it can get to a point where the class is too small to be really productive. What about wealth? We always think that if only I had lots more money, parenting would be so much easier, don't we? If I had more money, then parenting would be easier. But what he argues in the book is really interesting. He says money makes parenting easier until a certain point where wealth contains the seeds of its own destruction. Because you see, you have to learn as a parent to switch the conversation from no, we can't, to no, we won't. So it's different to say, no, we can't have that pony, to no, we won't have that pony. Which I know is a problem that all of you as parents have, isn't it, with your children. There are some parts of the country where that is the issue. But you see, no, we can't is different to no, we won't. So wealth isn't always, isn't always an advantage. So can a class size be too small? Can we make too much money? Can a Goliath be too big? What he argues is yes. Here's an interesting one. Citizens who live in happier, wealthy countries, they have an advantage, don't they? And yet actually, the highest suicide rates in the world are with citizens in healthier, wealthier, happier countries. Because what happens is that you see more happy people and more wealthy people and the contrast is too great and you can't cope. Going to the best school or university. Got to go to the best school or university. That's an advantage, right? Not always. The smarter your peers, the dumber you feel, the more likely you are to struggle or even to drop out. And what he says through evidence-based research is that many people who push their kids to the best schools and the best unis, actually that can be, not always, but that can be a disadvantage. Because those kids in that environment can feel so dumb that they just think, well, there's no point me even trying. And they can fail. Dyslexia must be a disadvantage, right? Not according to Richard Branson, Walt Disney, Cher, Tom Cruise, Lewis Carroll, Alexander Graham Bell, and a whole host of other billionaires who were all dyslexics. And George Bernard Shaw said this, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And there's something about disadvantage that causes you to be unreasonable and to turn it into an advantage if you're desperate enough. So here's this man and he's too short to see Jesus. It's a disadvantage, but he turns it into an advantage. And I don't know what your disadvantage is this morning. You might think in your life, oh yeah, but if only I didn't have this. If only this situation wasn't in my life. If only I wasn't single. You might say, if only I wasn't married, I don't know. But if only this wasn't happening. If only I didn't have this disadvantage, then it would all be okay. Perhaps God has brought you here this morning to say, do you know what? It might not be okay, but I can take that disadvantage and turn it into an advantage if you're desperate enough. If you're desperate enough, you'll find a way. And and here's this second thing, which is desperation. And verse 4 says, he runs ahead and climbs a tree. Rich men don't run ahead and climb trees, do they? I mean, they don't. You know, you don't see like you know, lords and ladies in England, do you? You don't see President Obama and David Cameron running and climbing trees. It just doesn't happen. They don't do it. It's too undignified to climb a tree. But he is desperate and he's desperate for relationship and he's desperate to get a look at Jesus and he climbs a tree. But then the next word is declaration. It says in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, and I can't help when I read this without thinking of a beer advert. You know that old beer advert? Refreshes the part so the beers cannot reach. I'm not comparing Jesus to beer, all right? Let me just make that clear. But just this sense that Jesus reached the spot. I don't know it's about geography, but I think it's deeper than that. 
And many of us in this room will tell you that it's only Jesus that could reach the spot inside of us where we really needed it to be reached. And there's that hunger for relationship. And, and Jesus reached the spot. And then he looks up in the tree and he sees Zacchaeus. And like the tension of that scene, this rich, hated tax collector in the tree and Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, stopping and looking up at Jesus. I just wish I could visualize that. I wish you could see it. I need something. I need, I know what I need. I know what I need. This is it. This will help. So Jesus stopped and then he looked up and there in the tree was Zacchaeus. Can you imagine the tension of that scene? All the crowd stopped as Jesus stopped. They must have thought, why has he stopped? Who has he stopped for? And then they looked at where he was looking and their eyes went up into the tree and there was Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. I mean, Jesus, you've stopped for the chief tax collector. What caused Jesus to stop? Maybe it was some of the people in the crowd who who actually said to him, Jesus, there he is. There's the chief tax collector. He's the one that robs us of all our money and gives it to the Romans and keeps some to himself. He's the one that's that's to blame for the fact that sometimes we don't even know where our next meal is going to come from. Or maybe Jesus actually saw just the end bits of Zacchaeus' rich, fine clothes dangling out of the trees. Or maybe, as I like to think, there was something in the heart of Jesus that sensed that nearby there was someone who was so desperate for a relationship that he would do anything to get in a position where he could connect with Jesus. And then Jesus makes this amazing declaration. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. This is a game-changing declaration for Zacchaeus. Note some things about the declaration. It's personal. Jesus uses his name, Zacchaeus. God knows us by name. You might think, so God could call me by name. Yes, he can. How does he do that? You know, any time you sense that, 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 you know, even this morning you might think, you know, what you're saying is like, that's speaking to me. That's speaking to my situation. That's God calling you by name. Not only is it personal, but it's also urgent. I must stay at your house. Not I'd like to. Is it okay if I pop round? But there's a divine necessity. I must stay at your house. And it's a relational declaration. I must stay at your house. I want to be a guest. I want to eat with you. I want to share relationship with you. This is a game-changing moment for Zacchaeus. As he sits up in the tree and thinks to himself, could this be true? That Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, not only loves the oppressed, but he also loves the oppressor. What's he going to do? Is he going to sit up in the tree where it's safe, where he can look at Jesus from a distance, but have no relationship? Or is he going to come down? Is he going to be vulnerable, risk it all, risk the wrath of the crowd, risk what Jesus might say, all for the relationship that he might get? What would you do? I know what I would do. One, two, three. Oh. Honestly, that tree is much higher in reality than what it looks like on air. Honestly, the way the camera was designed, it looks really short, but actually it was 20, 30 foot, got to be. In fact, it was really funny filming that in Hayden Hill Park and seeing the reaction of dog walkers. There were some dog walkers walking past and I'm in the tree going, and Jesus says, and they're looking up like this. It was so funny. But, but you know, in that moment, in that moment of that declaration, I must stay at your house today. The tension of that would have been unreal. And you could just imagine the crowd, can't you? And they're starting to what? What? We're stopping for him? And you're, in, you, you're saying you must stay at his house. I mean, it's just scandalous scandalous that the Son of God would want someone like him to be in his house. And, and that, just that phrase that came to me, you know, not only does he love the oppressed, but he loves the oppressor too. 
That's a tough one, but that's what grace is really all about. But then you see Zacchaeus in the tree has got to make the fourth D, which is decision. He's now got a decision. Does he stay up in the tree where it's kind of safe and he's looking at Jesus? Or does he become vulnerable and step down and actually put himself really close to Jesus and really close to the crowd? And I think we're like that often. And it may be that you're like that as well, that you kind of want to look at God and you want to look at Jesus, and, but you kind of want to do it from a safe place. And perhaps you have been doing it from a safe place, and that's okay. And if you're not ready, that's fine. Keep looking at him. But it may be that even this morning, some of you are actually ready to get down out of the tree. Perhaps some of you are looking at baptism and you're thinking, you know, I really should get baptised and I really want to get baptised, but I'm just not sure and I'm going to keep myself a little bit safe because then if I step down and I've got to speak to people and I've got to do it and I've got to make a decision and what about this and what, and so you keep yourself safe and that's okay. But if you keep yourself up the tree forever, you're missing out on what God's got for you. Because he said, I want to come and stay at your house today. And that phrase doesn't just mean I want to come and visit and have a sandwich and a cup of tea. It means I want to be a guest uh, you know, in Revelation 3, uh, it says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears the sound and hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. In other words, I'll come in and we'll have a relationship. We'll sit around the table. We'll eat and we'll share and we'll engage. You know, and I'll share my heart and I want to listen to your heart and it will be relationship. That's what we're hungry for. That's what people are hungry for. That's what I think Wayne and Cam were hungry for. They may not have known it at the time, but I think that's what they were hungry for. And they can tell you that that moment, 7th of July and whatever the other one was, that's when the game changed me. That's when I got down out the tree. That's when I got down and I made the decision to walk towards Jesus. And that could be the moment for you today as well. Even if there's just one of you and today could be the moment when you make the decision to step down out the tree and to enter into real relationship with God. Then there's a final thing and that's demonstration. Because as the crowd are beginning to mutter, you know, and grumble and stuff. And I, and I just think, oh, that's so, you know, so typical of the crowd. And, and I look at Jesus in the middle of all of that and I thought, you know, Jesus would rather risk his popularity with the crowd and have relationship with the one man. That relationship with one man is more important to him than popularity in the crowd. That's God. That's God. And then in that one moment, then you see a demonstration you know, here's how I know that Zacchaeus doesn't just have his game changed, but he becomes a game changer. It says in verse, uh, nine, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. See, genuine relationship with God brings genuine repentance and genuine change. Jesus never said to him, okay, if you come down out of the tree, you need to start giving to the poor, you need to start giving back the money, you need to start living right, you need to start filling in a standing order for him. He never said any of that. He met him and his game changed and he became a game changer. He's like, why wouldn't I want to give back what I've taken? Why wouldn't I want to give to God? Why wouldn't I want to help the poor? Why wouldn't I want to help the poor? And it's an evidence of whether we've really had our game changed by God. The main evidence is this. It's not how loud you sing. It's not how high you put your hands in the air. It's what you do with your money. It's what you do with your money. Someone said the last thing to get converted in a person is their wallet. And I want to suggest to you that what we do with our money more than anything else is a demonstration of whether Jesus has actually changed our game or not. 
And a guy called Charles Wright said it this way, how we use our money demonstrates the reality of our love for God. In some ways, it proves our love more conclusively than depth of knowledge, length of prayers, or prominence of service. These things can be feigned. In other words, they can be made up, manufactured. But the use of our possessions shows us up for what we actually are. Wow. And in that moment of demonstration of what's happened, I love this, that Zacchaeus has changed from being a getter to a giver, from being selfish to being selfless, from being a cheater to someone who is now a blesser of other people. And you know, when I was at the tree, I said that, you know, some of those guys would have been saying to Jesus, perhaps, you know, we sometimes don't know where our next meal is coming from because he nicks our money. And around the table that night, picture this, there would have been families sat around the table eating a meal together. And the kids would have said, where do we get this meal from? And mum would have said, you'll never guess, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. Wouldn't that be amazing? If in our communities where there's poverty, if in our parts of the world where there's poverty, wouldn't it be amazing if those of us, and we all have, and by the way, you might think, am I rich? If you earn £24,000 or more a year, you're in the top 3% of richest people in this planet. So we're all rich, really. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if all of us rich people and rich countries had a game-changing encounter like Zacchaeus. Imagine our community is being changed because they know where their next meal is coming from because those who have are starting to give to those who haven't. Those who've amassed, who've stockpiled, are starting to release and to give and to resource. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't our world be different? Wouldn't our community be different if actually we had our game changed like Zacchaeus did? It says in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes and he says, Command those who are rich, and that's all of us, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that. They may hold, take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, what's an advantage? Isn't how much money you've got in your bank account? It's what you're doing with it. it. really isn't. And you might think, I haven't got anything in my bank account. That's a disadvantage. It depends how you live in your life. Because we're not just rich with stuff. We can be rich with other things, can't we? Then we can live a life that's truly life. And then right at the end, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You know salvation is an interesting word. The word salvation literally means rescue. It's like imagine someone falling in in a river and someone throwing a rope in and they rescue them. To the Jewish mindset though, salvation means rescue from bad circumstances. Especially from oppression from another country. So so, so in Moses' day, salvation meant someone's going to deliver us from the Egyptians. In David's day, salvation meant someone is going to deliver us from the Philistines. In Jesus' day, salvation meant someone, the Messiah, will come and deliver us from the Romans. Rescue from bad circumstances. But to a non-Jew and to us, okay, 2,000 years later, salvation has almost become this. God will rescue us from our sins so we'll go to heaven when we die. Now that's true And all of that's good. But I want to tell you, none of that is really what salvation is. Salvation is much deeper than that. Salvation is rescue from a life of disconnection with God. And salvation is about putting our life in a situation where actually I am now connected to God, regardless of my circumstances. 
And so you can be as rich as you like, but you can still need saving because it could be that your wealth is what's keeping you disconnected from the life of God. Or it could be that you like that woman at the well and all of her relationships were what were keeping her disconnected from the life of God. Or you could be like Zacchaeus who's got himself on the edges of a situation where he was stuck in a tree and he needed salvation. He needed rescue. He needs to be reconnected with the life of God. So what's your disadvantage this morning? What's, what's the thing that you're thinking, if only this was different, then I could know God. Or perhaps you are a Christian this morning, but you've got yourself stuck in a tree somehow. And you're kind of looking at him and you're looking on to him, but you're not in that relationship. It's been a while. And you know, I think we all need saving again and again. I really do. Because I know that I get disconnected from the life of God so easily. And like I, 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 I've told you this before, but you know, I love this guy called Gordon McDonald. He's a great speaker. He's in his 70s now. and I heard him speak about a year ago. And he's written a lot of amazing books. And... Um, had an amazing life and not a perfect life at all. Um, but he says, every day when I get up, I give my life to Jesus again. And I get down on my knees and I pray the prayer and I ask God to come into my life again and to save me. And I thought, I want to live like that. It's not because he's not saved, but, but because you want to live in that reality of the connection with God. And you're desperate for a relationship with God. I don't just want to know about him, I want to know him. Do you know what I mean? And I just wonder this morning if in the time that we've got left, some of us need just to do a little bit of business with God here. I need to say, do you know what? I've got myself stuck in a tree. I've got myself looking on and not really engaging. I'm, I'm making opinions and I'm critiquing, but I'm not really connecting. I'm not really connecting with God. And it could be that Jesus has stopped at this spot and he's calling you down. And he's saying, now is the moment to come down again and to enter into relationship because I want to come to your house. I want to come to your house. I want to eat with you. I want to share relationship with you. Why don't we pray? In a moment, we're going to sing again and just we've got a little bit of time left this morning where we're just going to create some space just let God come close to us this morning. Maybe that there are some of you here and you've never given your life to Jesus for the first time. Perhaps you're like Zacchaeus and you don't identify with the fact that he was a chief tax collector or he was short or any of that. But you do identify with the desperation for relationship. And you do identify with the fact that you're curious and you want to see Jesus and you're kind of like in a tree and you're looking on but you haven't yet made that decision. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. We don't do this every week, but I want to give you an opportunity. And if there isn't anyone, then that's fine. But if there is, then that will be amazing. So if that's you this morning and you say, do you know what? I think I'm ready to come down out the tree. I don't quite know what to do, but I just want to say yes. just want to say yes to God. And while everyone's got their eyes closed, I want to ask you to do something really brave. But if you're desperate enough, you will. I want you just to slip your hand up just so that you know you've done it, I can see it and I'm going to pray for you this morning. So is there anyone here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time? I want to give you that opportunity. Is there anyone here this morning? Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Thank you. Thank you. 
God, I want to thank you so much for these people and the courage that they took to respond to you. And God, I really want to pray right now that they'd almost, like I had to jump out that tree, hopefully they'll land a little bit softer, a little bit more elegantly than I did. But God, I really pray that as they make this decision, they will know that you are already on your way towards them. God, would you wrap your arms around them? Would you show them relationship, I pray? Come into their lives, I pray. Save them, rescue them from that disconnection and help them to be connected to you by the work you've done on the cross and by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together? We're going to sing, worship. And I want to just encourage you in this space that we've got now. Wherever you are, just come close to God this morning, okay? Just get out of the tree. Get out of just observing. Connect with Him. You're desperate to be with Him. Relationship with Him. It's a game changer. It's a game changer. When you're in relationship with Him and you're going to say, what have I got? What stuff have I got? What can I do? What can I give? What can I, how can I bless people? How can I change communities? That happens when you've entered into a relationship with Jesus. Not because you have to, but because you've had relationship and you want to. You just want to. It's just like natural. What can I give? Because I've had my game changed through relationship.